Thursday, December 29th, 2016. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Pope Runyon. And tonight we present a review and discussion on Technology Rising by Patrick M. Woods, 2015. Now, this book documents the 1930s origin and rise of an American totalitarian sociopolitical and economic system derived originally from Plato's Republic that flourished after the 1929 crash and during the pre-war years of the Great Depression. In technocracy, scientists and academics will manage the government of the country. Our constitutional republic and its capitalistic economy will be replaced by a dictatorship. Technocracy's connection to the eugenics movement and to Nazism put it into eclipse until the 1970s, when technocracy reemerged with David Rockefeller's Trilateral Commission and began to infiltrate the U.S. government beginning with the Jimmy Carter administration in the 1970s. Technocracy subverted the United Nations, which soon became its agent for a technocratic world government. Like their cousins, the communists, the technocrats claim to be democratic. They seek to replace our currency-based economic system with a cashless energy credit system. They have hijacked general systems theory to justify environmental regulations to control energy. Of course, the big problem for the people under this system is the loss of their freedom, loss of property, loss of representation in government, and loss of what we consider basic human rights. Even the socialist philosopher Bertrand Russell, when examining Plato's government of the philosopher Kings, was forced to say that only true democracy, human rights. So, if you want to know what the technocrats have in store for you when they get back in office, tune in and we'll have a look. Now, before we get into this discussion, I need to clarify two points. First, Patrick Wood never mentions Plato or his republic in Technocracy Rising. But in reading the book, I was aware of how essentially platonic the technocratic system actually was, and I confirmed this connection with further research. Likewise, Wood never credits Ludwig von Bertalanffy's general system theory, although he mentions system theory in connection with environmental regulations. He also avoids Marxism but admits that the Fabian Society and their influence on the technocrats, while stressing the technocrats' influence on both the Nazis and the Soviets. He does discuss the Council on Foreign Relations, but he does not refer to Gary Allen's 1971-2013 None Dare Call It Conspiracy. I would get the updated edition, which exposes the CFR's globalist agenda. I believe both Woods and Allen's books should be read together to fully understand what the New World Order is all about. Now, forget the Illuminati, the Masons, the Bohemian Grove, the Skull and Bones, and uh, uh, the Ashtar Command. This, this is the real deal. And we can't blame it on Europe, like Lyndon LaRoche did when he quipped that 
the new world order has an old world odor. Well, perhaps that old world odor might be applied to the Frenchman Henri Saint-Simon, 1760-1825. He actually fought in the American Revolution, and he advocated Christian socialism and he influenced both Jean Rousseau and Karl Marx, and probably Adam Weishaupt. I add Weishaupt to throw a bone to those who are compelled to connect the Illuminati to any kind of globalist conspiracy. Now, let's take a short uh, ex- uh, leave, uh, let's leave off uh, uh, Wood's book for just a bit and talk about uh, uh, Saint uh, Saint Simon, Claude Claude Henry Saint Simon. And this is from another source. This is from uh, Rune's History of Philosophy. Saint-Simon, Claude-Henri Comte Day. Uh, in Saint-Simon's personality, the mind of a true philosopher, this is back in the time of the American Revolution, remember, that the, the mind of a true philosopher was coupled with that of a smart businessman that a, and that of a sincere philanthropist who, uh, with that, uh, of, an, uh, of an adventurous schemer. He fought at, York, at Yorktown for the American independence. He was the first to advocate the building of the canals at Suez and Panama. More than a hundred years before the Young Plan, he demanded the foundation of an international bank. And his most faithful disciples became founders of joint stock societies and constructors of canals and railroads, which, as St. Simon taught, taught them, are necessary for the organization of human welfare and the realization of the ideals of human solidarity. St. Simon was the first to denounce exploitation of men by their fellow men and first to prognosticate the increasing concentration of capital and industry. But he was also one of those wicked speculators, this begins to sound like George Soros, who who uh, are were branded by Robespierre, and he narrowly escaped execution during the French Revolution. He amassed a large fortune, but he died in poverty. Saint Simon's dominant idea was that of a social system that it must be an application of a philosophical system, and that the function of philosophy uh, is prevalently a social one, and after 10 years of studies devoted to physics, astronomy, and chemistry, he turned to the study of human society and pronounced as a result that philosophical changes cause social changes, and that philosophy, as he he conceived it, must found a new society, a new religion, and a new evaluation of men. He especially emphasized that in modern times, the industrial worker had become far greater importance than the nobleman, the soldier, and the priest, and consequently that he must occupy a higher social position than the former dignitaries. To industrial workers, scholars, and bankers, he entrusted the organization of a new social system which may be characterized as a kind of technocratic socialism. But the form of government was, in St. Simon's opinion, of lesser importance 
than the problem of administration. Therefore, he was not radically opposed to monarchism. After the publication of his works on reorganization of Europe, 1814, and the industrial system and catechism of industrialists, industrialists, 1820-21-1824, he wrote the new Christianity in the year of his death, 1825, by which he intended to substitute secular religion of a pantheistic and sensualistic color for the Christian faith. A small circle of enthusiastic disciples revered St. Simon, who lived in obscurity and poverty, as the founder of the religion of the future. And after his death, he became famous the world over due to the propagandistic ardor of his pupils. He particularly influenced Goethe, Carlyle, Auguste Comte, and Karl Marx. Now let's go back to uh, to uh, Patrick Woods. Saint Simon's disciple was Auguste Comte, 1798-1857. Comte is said to be the father of modern sociology. Of course, the science of sociology is statistics, and the operative technology is poll taking. Well, we can see how well this worked for them in the last presidential election. But um, actually, when it comes to uh, uh, Comte, his his uh, his science was phrenology, and that is that mapping, you know, the bumps on the head and mapping mapping the uh, sections of the brain on the human head. I think we've all seen that that head. Uh, let's uh, let's let's digress again and go back to to Rune's summary of uh, Comte of August of August Comte. Comte Auguste, 1798-1857. The utopian socialist Saint Simon influenced Comte in his youth. Comte had little use for logic or philosophy, but insisted, uh, but but instead he advocated the study of phrenology. And his object was to show that philosophy was in the stage of being absorbed by science. Theology uh, was the first stage of philosophy, wherein nature was explained by the supernatural metaphysics constituted the second stage. And philosophy was concerned with such abstractions as purpose, life, and the apriori, and the apriori the third and last stage was positivism, which Comte said implied experiment, observation, and the consequences derived from the laws of phenomena. His best-known work, Cours uh, de philosophie positive, was published 1830 in six volumes. He maintained that science was, had always been experimental and observational and therefore positivistic, and that it never required metaphysics either to help determine its course or its limits. His ethics was based on the factor of egotism. This, he said, would lead to a consideration of others or altruism. How do you get that? I don't know. And thence, a, uh, man, thence, and thence to mankind as the guarantor of social order uh, that would be beneficial to the individual. Now, well, that, 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 that's what all of them think. You know that their that their selfishness is somehow going to help all the rest of us. In order to ensure the effectiveness of this, he formalized his uh, this attitude into religion into a religion with saints, holy days, sacraments, and prayers, and made himself the high priest of the cult. And although he died in 1857, still are remnants 
of sects that uphold the religion he founded. The personal life of Comte had many unhappy aspects. He was twice committed to an insane asylum, and the first time as a result of his unhappy marriage to a woman of the streets, and the second after the death of the wife of a man in prison for life. And it was it was uh, it was her who uh, served as liaison between the uh, between mankind and the high priest. John Stuart Mill was one of Comte's principal sponsors, helping him to remain solid, right, and spread his cult. The positivist philosophy was a reaction to the speculative phase that developed in philosophy after Kant. Okay, so that gives us an idea of, um, of Comte. Now, the American follower of St. Simeon and Comte was... Thornstein Veblen, 1857-1929, and he was an economist and a sociologist who followed Darwin and developed uh, a theory of economic evolution. He founded an academy called the New School, where one of his students, Jack Leg engineer Howard Scott, who would go on to become the leader and the founder of Technocracy Incorporated. Scott became the protege of Walter Rautenstarch, head of the Industrial Engineering Department of Columbia University. Unfortunately for Scott, he had no university degree, and when this was exposed, technocracy's brief academic imprimatur was lost. Somebody made the mistake of saying that he graduated from Columbia University, uh, some uh, reporter did, and and, uh, and Scott did not correct that, and, and, the, and, the, and he was pilloried because of that. Scott was a charismatic figure, joined uh, with a colleague, M. King Hubert, who was the author of the peak oil theory. Now, this is important. Peak oil theory uh, meant that we were running out of oil, basically. And riding along with the popularity of Frederick Taylor's principles of scientific management, which influenced both Hitler and Stalin, technocracy became a hope for economic salvation in America after the crash of 1929. Along with Taylor's industrial efficiency, technocracy embraced the eugenics movement, which continued sterilizing mental defectives in California as late as 1963. California's eugenics program was the model for for the eugenics program of the Nazis. Now, at the present time, Governor Jerry Brown now wants to compensate victims of this program, especially Mexican men and women, whom the eugenics technocrats in California considered automatically inferior. Of course, now these same technocrats want to flood the country with them. Technocracy became very popular and evolved into a paramilitary-type organization with a fleet of gray-painted buses and staff cars and Nazi-style uniforms. Now, this sounds like a bit like Scientology, and we can't help wondering if there might be some connection. However, as the dangers of Nazism and eugenics uh, became distasteful to Americans gearing up for World War II, technocracy faded away and went underground. And, of course, World War II, which was actually a continuation of World War I, lifted international capitalism out of the Great Depression. 
and then the technocrats reemerged in 1971 when David Rockefeller established a Blue Ribbon International Business and Political Association called the Trilateral Commission. The three-point axis of the Trilateral Commission was Western Europe, America, and Japan. Rockefeller very quickly connected his council with the Bilderberg Group and Carter, as a Trilateral Commission member, they took control of the American government at that time. The United Nations was predisposed to technocratic philosophy and soon became the platform for the implementation of technocratic programs on a global scale. The New World Order had finally arrived, and it retained all of its earlier characteristics, including eugenics, which had been renamed transhumanism. We did a Hermetic Hour show on transhumanism a year ago. You can look it up in the archives. At this point, I think we need to ask ourselves, why would a group of businessmen during a fairly prosperous era embrace and promote an anti-capitalistic, anti-democratic, political economic system like technocracy? Why? And the question fairly screams at us. The answer lies way back with the Fabian Society of the 19th century. Even then, the coming population explosion was being foreseen and the decline of Western civilization's world domination predicted. The Fabians, most of them wealthy or otherwise powerful individuals, remembered the French Revolution and the wrath of the mob against the wealthy aristocrats. They knew that their wealth and power could only be protected through a system of controlling the people by pretending to serve them. The philanthropic altruism and democracy of socialism was a false flag under which they could establish oligarchies to control nations and rule them for their benefit. Unlike the Marxist Bolsheviks, the Fabians opted for a gradual approach to transforming representational republics into socialist dictatorships. The technocrats, using the Fabian model, almost succeeded in the United States until the recent presidential election rejected their hand-picked presidential candidate. The Clintons belonged to the Trilateral Commission and the CFR. Both Roman Emperor Constantine and Adam Weishaupt hijacked Christianity for political control of the masses. Technocracy and its cousins, not the Nazis and the communists, have exploited and hijacked democracy and with the environmentalist movement to serve their agenda. Have you ever wondered why communist dictatorships always call themselves people's democratic republics? Democracy is a holy word, like Mother Earth and ecology. And this is why Ludwig von Bertalanffy's general system theory, 1967, was a perfect scientific rationale for theocracy's next great subversive conquest, the environmentalist ecology movement. And you may recall that one of theocracy's goals was the total control of energy. One of the founders, M. King Hubert, was the author of the peak oil theory, general systems theory, was the was ready-made scientific doctrine to underwrite 
the collection and manipulation of data on greenhouse gases, climate change, species extinction, and pollution. Technocracy not only seeks to replace representative constitutional government, it also presumes to revise the system of statute law on which it is based, replacing it with reflexive law based on situational conditions rather than on tradition or precedent. Technocratic bureaucrats rule not by law but by regulation, and they have legal power under reflexive law. I might point out here that the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency of the government, is a, is a, is a technocratic bureaucratic technocrat uh, organization. Now, Patrick Wood has summarized the United Nations Agenda 21 for Sustainable Development and published the entire text of the United Nations Earth Charter. And both of these documents are intended to supersede the United States Constitution, void our national sovereignty, and cancel our Bill of Rights. I recommend that we should all read Patrick Wood's Technology Rising and also the updated version of Gary Allen's None Dare Call It Conspiracy. There are two classic handbooks for dictators. The first and oldest is Plato's Republic. The second is Machiavelli's The Prince. But each of these philosophers had a warning for us. Plato said that democracies always evolve or devolve into tyrannies. And Machiavelli observed that all republics carry within themselves the seeds of their own destruction. And that every 200 years, a republic should return to its original principles if it wishes to survive. Technocracy was an American creation. Perhaps it grew from one of these seeds of destruction Niccolo Machiavelli warned us about. If so, it is a weed to be rooted out. Now that we have completed the review, I think it's time to uh, I think it's time to explain this has to do with hermetic philosophy and also dip into um, Bertrand Russell here and get a, an idea of what uh, of uh, the, the the platonic connection. Let me say this: uh, this is this all has has uh, something to do with with Hermetic philosophy, uh, basically because of Plato, but not the Republic. Because actually, the Republic came came uh, into Europe. But, uh, translation of the Republic came came into Europe much later than the Timaeus, Critias and Timaeus, and this means that that Hermetic um, uh, hermetic philosophy, uh, the, the Platonic influence hermetic in hermetic philosophy is primarily from the Timaeus and the Cos in Plato's uh, very very Pythagorean cosmology, and Plato and uh, his metaphysics uh, was Platonic, and and so uh, we we our connection to Plato is primarily the hermetic connection is primarily uh, with Timaeus. Uh, and and uh, and Critus, and not with the Republic, but because Plato, Plato's Republic, has been influential, uh, very influential on on the um, on the Marxist and the technocratic philosophies, 
and uh, the uh, fascist philosophies and the Nazis. And because of that, uh, and because it is Plato, uh, therefore, you know, it's fair game for uh, for a hermetic uh, commentator to uh, to address the issue. And another thing that I should point out is that magicians and uh, and and although there's a lot of thelemites who who are actually uh, support are, are are supportive of technocracy, uh, but they 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 don't realize that uh, that the, the the loss of freedom for the individual uh, that's, that's inherent in technocracy they don't realize it, uh, but they 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 fall for the you know the propaganda uh, uh, the uh, the false the false democratic and and false. Uh, um, uh, metaphysical promises of the technocrats, uh, but the uh, technocracy uh, certainly does not support the book of the law at all. Although, I, as I say, there's 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 a lot of thelemites out there that uh, that probably uh, uh, think somehow that it does, uh, but I disagree with them completely on that. Now. What I would like to do here is uh, is get into Bertrand Russell. And let me uh, say something about this. This is Bertrand Russell's history of uh, Western philosophy, and Bertrand Russell himself was a socialist, and uh, and yet at the same time, he is he is uh, critical of uh, of uh, Plato in the, in, in the respect that that he very much for for freedom. And uh, we'll, we'll get we'll, we'll get through this section of Bertrand Russell to give us an idea of, of, uh, of what his, what his thoughts on it were. How all this is connected with authoritarianism and politics? In the first place, goodness and reality being timeless, the best state will be the one which most nearly copies the heavenly model. We're talking about Plato here. By having a minimum of change and a maximum of static perfection. And its rulers should be those who best understand the eternal good. In the second place, Plato, like all mystics, has beliefs, a core of certainty, which is essentially incommunicable except by a way of life. The Pythagoreans had endeavored to set up a rule of the initiate, and this is at bottom what Plato desires. If a man is to be a good statesman, he must know the good. This he can do by a combination of intellectual and moral discipline. If those who have not gone through this discipline are allowed to share in the government, they will inevitably corrupt it. In the third place, much education is needed to make a good ruler on Plato's principles. It seems to us unwise to have insisted on teaching geometry to the younger Dionysus, tyrant of Syracuse, in order to make him a good king. But from Plato's point of view, this was essential. He was sufficiently Pythagorean to think that without mathematics, no true wisdom is possible. 
This view implies an, an oligarchy. In the fourth place, Plato, in common with most Greek philosophers, took the view that leisure is essentially is essential to wisdom, which will therefore not be found among those who have to work for their living, but only among those who have independent means and who are relieved by the state from anxieties as to their substance. This point of view is essentially aristocratic, and it's also academic. Two general questions, uh, two general questions arise confirming Plato with uh, modern ideas. The first is, is there such a thing as wisdom? The second is granted that there is such a thing. Can any constitution be devised that will give it political power? Wisdom, in the sense supposed, would not be the kind of specialized skill such as possessed by the shoemaker or the physician or the military tactician. It must be something more generalized than this. And since its possession is supposed to make a man capable of governing wisely, I think Plato would have said that it consists in knowledge of the good and would have supplemented this definition with uh, the Socratian doctrine that no man sins willingly, from which it follows uh, that which that whatever whatever knows whatever knows what is good does what is right. And to us, such a view seems remote from reality. We would more naturally say that there are divergent divergent interests, and that the statement should arrive at the best available compromise. The members of a class or a nation may have a common interest, but it will usually conflict with the interests of the other classes or other nations. And there are no doubt some interests of mankind, such as a whole, but they do not uh, suffice to determine political action. And perhaps they will do so at some future date, but certainly not as long as there are and there are many sovereign states. You see where this is going. And even that the most difficult part of the pursuit of the general interest would consist in arriving at compromises among mutually hostile special interests. But even if we suppress that there is, but even if we suppose that there is such a thing as wisdom, is there any form of constitution which will give the government to the wise? It is clear that majorities, like general councils, may err, and in fact have, have erred. Aristocracies are not always wise. Kings are often foolish. Popes, in spite of infallibility, have committed grievous errors. Would anybody advocate entrusting the government to university graduates or even to doctors of divinity or to men who, having been born poor, have made great fortunes? It is clear that no legally definable selection of citizens is likely to be wiser in practice than the whole body. It might be suggested 
that men could be given political wisdom by suitable training. But the question would arise, what is the suitable training? And this would turn out to be a party question. The problem of finding a collection of wise men and leaving the government to them is thus an insolvable one. This is the ultimate reason for democracy. I want to read that over again. The problem of finding a collection of wise men and leaving the government to them is thus an insolvable one. That is the ultimate reason for democracy. Now, uh, there's no doubt whatsoever that Russell is right. And the reason, of course, is, and especially if you read if you read the uh, Agenda 21 and, and uh, the Earth Charter, you realize that what'll happen, what will happen if these people are successful and they do, they do uh, uh, take over not just the United States but the whole world that they're trying to do, uh, that the common man is, is not going to have, have freedom. Our Bill of Rights, which we consider precious, and which, of course, also, uh, I'm talking to my Thelemite friends now, uh, is, is the Book of the Law certainly, certainly uh, uh, goes along with the American Bill of Rights. And, and our Bill of Rights was one of the first things that is going to be thrown out. Uh, and uh, Plato... If we get back into Plato uh, and uh, go further in analyzing what, what he really what he really wants, is a complete dictatorship. It, it, it's it's uh, it, it reads like a, a, like a charter for Nazi Germany or, or, or Stalinist Russia, and and uh, conditioning of the youth and, and uh, training training kids to to die for their country and and uh, and, and um, uh, control of the, of the press. There's no freedom of the press. Uh, everything, all the propaganda, all the studies are controlled. Plato did not want uh, want uh, Homer uh, read to the uh, to the students because uh, uh, he Homer indicated that the gods sometimes made mistakes and sometimes. Uh, were not as good as they should be, and so consequently, uh, the children could could not read uh, read uh, stories from Homer or, or even from Greek mythology unless unless the the gods were completely respected. He wanted to completely control. He didn't he didn't want he wanted to control drama, and uh, uh, not the way they. <laughs> you, know, you may think Hollywood is controlled today. Well, you know, Plato Plato wanted to. Wanted to completely control drama so that so that he didn't even want good men uh, playing villains. He he thought that that the, he wanted drama to be completely controlled by the state, uh, and uh, and and of course, as far as economics are concerned, Plato would, uh, was against uh, free you know commerce and and. and what what we would now call capitalism. He he wanted a communist kind of kind of an economy. Uh, and of course, the technocrats 
one of the things that the technocrats, uh, one of the great flaws in their idea is they they think that the, the that engineers and scientists can 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 run the country uh, for the country's own good, but the problem is that the innovations. One of the things that's made America uh, uh, leader of the world in so many ways is is uh, the innovation that that the free market and capitalistic uh, economy uh, promotes, and that's competition in business. Uh, we, you know, like for instance. Uh, uh, in America, we have we have we probably make the world's best washing machines because uh, several companies make them and they're all in competition with each other. And and whereas uh, in in Soviet Russia, uh, there's only one company there's only one company making a washing machine and that's it. And and uh, they have nobody competing with them, so they, their washing machine may not be very good. But of course, they're they're. Uh, the rockets were were good because uh, they they ran off with all the German rocket engineers, and of course we got the physicists, but they got the engineers, so they got ahead of us that way. But it wasn't their innovation; it was Germany. All the the entire space program was was developed in Germany and continued uh, both uh, in uh, by Germans in in the United States and in Russia, and um, so uh, the the idea that, that science that science is somehow going to proceed uh, without comp- without business competition. Uh, well, yes, it it it, 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 it could if, it, but only but only in in a in a competition between uh, between a communist country and, and 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 a country that is not communist, then then you might have then you then you have an incentive for for motivation. Uh, in other words, the technocratic system is is flawed. It's flawed in a number of ways. It stifles innovation. It uh, it, it stifles freedom. It uh, it's tyrannical, uh, and uh, it, uh, it it the propaganda that that, that it promotes is is, is soul depleting, and and quite frankly, we are very very fortunate to be uh, uh, you know to have a, a respite from it. Uh, to have perhaps escaped from it for eight years, we hope, and and uh, and I think we must be very very vigilant not to let it creep back in. If we if we can somehow root it out, let's uh, you know let's root it out and not let it creep back in. Now, uh, as I said, the hermetic connection to this uh, is is that uh, magicians value freedom. Whether they're Thalamic or 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 Rosicrucian or or whatever, magician freedom freedom of, is is essential to the magician, and it's essential to the Hermetic tradition, because in the Hermetic tradition, uh, uh, you are God, and and uh, God is within you, and and you are essentially free. So. Uh, that's about as far as I want to go with this particular uh, subject tonight. Uh, now, um, I have to get back to work on on uh, on the second volume of the yoga book, and so uh, uh, the next uh, uh, January fifth, our next show will be a rerun of Alexandria and how the Western esoteric tradition began. 
and uh, and after that, uh, we're going to have uh, in January 12th. We'll probably have underground cities in Central Asia, uh, and uh, that's of course quite a contrast between Alexandria and how the Western esoteric tradition began. But both but both are important, and so. Uh, next week, be sure and tune in because Alexandria, uh, in the in the first century, was was uh, where where all of our hermetic uh, uh, the hermetic tradition and alchemy and, and astrology and magic and all of this got started. And so uh, we'll see you then. And until then, good magic.